Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Kara. And I'm Missy. Hi, Missy. Hi. I'm excited to talk with you tonight. We're always excited to talk. I know. And I think today's topic is going to be really, really good. So let's talk about genetic screening, aneuploidy screening, um, prenatal screening. How does that sound? I think it's great. I think it's a topic that a lot of students and new grads um, are uncomfortable with. And mostly because depending on your population that you work with, you may or may not do this a lot. And if you're in with a population that doesn't do a lot of testing, then it's something that when it does come up is just something that you're like, I don't know enough about this. Well, and so much has changed over the years. Think back to when you and I started as midwives and we had the quad screen. And since that time, I mean, really in the last 15 years, there's just so many options. There are so many options. And I think it's important for midwives to be able to just talk about the options with their patients and also provide that really nice model of shared decision-making. Like I just, I think the first like principle of this is, is like, not everybody's going to choose this. And that shared decision-making model that we have with midwifery comes into play when we talk to to patients about, um, about genetic testing. Right. Because a big portion of shared decision-making is really informed consent, right? Informed in the process of what are the risks of testing? What are the benefits of testing? What are some of the alternatives and having a good understanding of that as the midwife provider so that you can share that with patients is so vitally important. It's really confidence on the part of the midwife to be able to answer questions confidently um, and to be able to give the right amount of information as to not overwhelm patients, but also to give them the information they need to make the right decision. I agree. I agree. So if we break this down as what the different options are, or how we're going to frame this conversation, I think one of the most important things is to really have a good understanding of screening and diagnosis as a foundation. I agree. And I think that I, I want to kind of start this conversation in the prenatal or in the, in the, in the setting of preconception, okay, and then we'll go into idea. prenatal. Um, because I do think that we see enough patients who are of childbearing age that also come to us either whether they mean to or not in a preconception period. Right. And yeah, so I, I actually think anytime we see a patient in the office and they're not pregnant is a preconception period because exactly. you just don't know, right? Like 50 some odd percent, 52% of all pregnancies are un, unplanned. So it's an option that we can be talking about women in that childbearing age um, and things that we might need to do. So the thing in the preconception period, I think that's really important to remember is that the, as carrier screening. So we were saying earlier when you and I were talking that, you know, the biggest thing we think about for things like carrier screening is something like cystic fibrosis. Do you have a family history? Um, is there a reason that you think you might be a carrier? Do you know about your, your intended partner? Are they a carrier? Um, so this idea of carrier screening, not just for cystic fibrosis, it could be something like sickle cell disease um, or any of the, you know, um, hemoglobinopathies like thalassemia. There are things that you can be tested for, especially if your history or your risk um, for those kinds of things is it indicates that carrier screen is a place to start before you ever even get pregnant. And those would be a one-time testing. Like once you know, you're a carrier for something 
other than if your partner changes, that would also be important for them to know, but it's a one-time testing for you yourself as a patient. So I agree. That's a great starting point. And we see that in the chart, right? Um, We'll see like a G3, P2, and it'll say, you know, CF carrier tested in first pregnancy or diagnosed in first pregnancy. So those are people who've had carrier screens, um, and, and, or had a baby that was affected. There's all kinds of reasons that you would, might see that in a chart, but you know, carrier screening is one place to start. And again, not everybody is a candidate for carrier screening. You really have to do some good shared decision-making about risk and, um, about family history. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So now let's talk about the idea of screening and diagnosis, and then we'll kind of go through maybe the trimesters of pregnancy. Yeah. So I think of screening is asymptomatic. Like it's a, you're looking at someone that doesn't have any symptoms of something. You're just doing a screen to see if they are at risk. Right. Right. And I try to drive this home with, with midwives and and students in that there are tons of tests that we are do our screening. So you have to frame it that way. So we screen people for gestational diabetes. That doesn't mean they have it, but we screen them. A pap smear is a screening test, right? Um, because that just says, are, do you, are you at risk for this disease, cervical cancer? Um, right. A mammogram is a screening test. So we have to go through in our heads and just be able to, to say like, well, what things do we do that are actual screening tests versus what is diagnostic? So, and then the diagnostic end of that is right. We do a three hour glucose tolerance test. We do an ultrasound or a fine needle biopsy, fine needle aspiration, or we do um, a colposcopy. Those with biopsy, those things are all diagnostic. So the difference here between screening, we're going to do a blood test or um, an ultrasound. We're going to do some, something to look at is there a chance that this other thing might be wrong? Do we need to do more or something diagnostic? The good news is when it comes to genetic testing, there's only two diagnostic tests. Yes. Do you want to talk about this? Sure. Yeah. So diagnostic tests that we have available are either CVS, which is chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis. And with that, you're actually sampling actual fetal cells um, from the placenta or from the amniotic fluid, they've been actually sloughed off of the fetus and they're in the amniotic fluid and they're going to do a karyotyping. So a true genetic analysis of either of those, depending on which test is done and what, and the timing in the pregnancy and actually are diagnostic for a chromosomal anomaly because they are looking at the actual genes, chromosomes, so forth. And so that is the only way that we can truly diagnose something. We can see structural problems, which may or may not be chromosomal by ultrasound, but that is still not diagnostic. The true diagnosis is looking at the cells for chromosomal anomalies, or once the fetus is delivered, seeing structural anomalies as true diagnosis. Yeah. Really important. Like no matter what you think or hear or see or read two diagnostic tests, that's it. Yes. And they're not very frequently done really. Like they are pretty rare that we see true diagnostic tests done because we have such good screening tests. And I think there's also just a heaviness or a weight to the idea and the risk of CVS or amniocentesis. Although that sometimes is a little bit 
um, blown out of proportion for the true risk. Um, the procedures themselves are not as risky as many people think they are, but um, they are our only diagnostic tests. All the rest of them are screening, including even like a level two ultrasound, a very detailed ultrasound is still screening. I will give you one additional outlier that you won't see very often. And that is in IVF patients. The outlier for patients who have IVF is they can do genetic screening or genetic testing on the actual embryos prior to transfer. And so that gives you an actual chromosomal um, array of that particular embryo. So the reason that people would choose to do that is if you're having IVF, most, a lot of parents want to know that they have like a genetically, a chromosomally intact baby or embryo prior to transfer. So you don't see it very often, but you may see an IVF patient who has a chromosomal array just based on embryonic testing. Well, and a lot of patients that may be seeking some of those assisted reproductive technologies are also a little bit older and may have greater risk of chromosomal anomalies if they're using their own egg and sperm and so forth. So Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's a really good foundation. Now we can talk about what the different tests are that are available at different points in the gestation. Does that sound like a good way to frame this? Yeah. I love that. I also just want to point out um, one of the resources that I found when we were getting ready to prep for this topic is an ACOG practice bulletin that came out. Um, I think it was in 2020. Yeah. October of 2020. And, um, it is number 226 screening for fetal chromosomal abnormalities. And there are some, this would be one that I would print out and kind of have in my little bag at all times, or have a copy of it on my iPad or my phone or something, because there's some really nice tables within this document that talk through what all of the different options are, what gestational ages they can be done, what the detection rates are. Um, really, really nice. Could be good to use in counseling with patients, I think, because it can help you say what the likelihood is of false negative or false positive results can help you really explain what all the different options are. And then it has a really great table as well that talks about what the risk of trisomy 21, trisomy 18, trisomy 13, so forth are at different kind of like major ages so that you could even tell someone like based on someone else, your age of 20, here's what your risk of one of these trisomies would be, which is different than someone that is 40 years old or 35 years old or those sorts of things. And this type of resource is something that I don't just store easily in my head. It would be a nice one to have printed out. Yeah. And before we even get into these screening tests, I want to just highlight something that you just said. Risk for things like chromosomal abnormalities go up with age. So when, like you were just saying, like there's a nice table, like after 35, we know that risk increases significantly. So if you have young, healthy patients who are in their, you know, childbearing years under 30, this is a different conversation when you're doing shared decision-making than with your patients who are AMA, advanced maternal age, over 35, even over 40, the risk then significantly jumps again. So understanding that is an important component of being able to provide good shared decision-making with your patients. Agreed. Although 
another good point is that these are tests that should be discussed with everyone, right? So it's, although we do want to have a good understanding of age and what that looks like for risk, we want to be able to discuss this with every single patient because these different options should be made available and discussed with every patient. Okay. So let's start out in the first trimester. Um, and a lot of people will talk about first trimester screening, which includes that nuchal translucency by ultrasound, and then some serum blood draw testing for um, PAP-A and free beta HCG. And then, well, so that is the blood test. Then we can combine that first trimester screening with like AFP later on if we want to. Um, but that first trimester is that ultrasound and those few blood markers. And it can be done anywhere between like 10 and 14 weeks and is a pretty easy, non-invasive way to do some testing. Um, it's early. It's nice. It's just done at a single point in time. can be a really pretty straightforward test for some people. What are some, what is some rationale behind why people might do first trimester screening? Well, if they did first trimester screening and saw something abnormal, then they could act on that sooner and could consider what, you know, CVS testing can be done earlier than amniocentesis. So if they were going to make decisions about what if they had a diagnosis, if they did a diagnostic test and had a diagnosis earlier, it may free up some of their options of what would be available to them. And particularly depending on what state they live in and what the options are in their community. I also, when you said that, I thought, oh, this is a thing I say in the clinic all the time when I'm doing shared decision-making. I think these tests are great, but I need you to understand what the implications are for what the results mean. What are you going to do with the information? What are you going to do with the information? Because if you're, if you don't know what you're going to do with the information, you need to think about that first. But if something comes back that it's abnormal, are you doing that? So you're well prepared for the abnormality. Are you doing it because you want to terminate? Um, are you, or would you rather just not know? Like, is the exactly. not knowing okay with you? Yeah, because so, there's some risk to testing, right? Like there's, it starts a whole cascade of potential options. And do you want to even consider any of those options? And I, and, you know, I worked with a, a big Catholic community um, in my last practice. And, you know, the idea of, um, would you consider terminating if there's something wrong with your baby? And they say, no. Then I say, then let's rethink this test. Does this, is this test something that we need to do because you need to be prepared or is it better to wait until your baby is born and, and deal with whatever, um, anomalies or, or abnormalities may be present? Yeah. And I don't think that, I think you've hit on a really good point that it's not just, are you going to terminate or not, but what are you going to do with that information? How is it going to impact your experience of the rest of the pregnancy, just being super prepared. Are you a, I need to know. So I have a plan, that kind of person or kind of the ignorance is bliss. I just want to enjoy being pregnant. I love this baby. I'm going to, you know, we can't wait to see what we get, you know, kind of idea. Um, there's different ways that people approach their pregnancies and what would be right for them. And we're yeah, not going to make the decision for them. I, I also, I just, I worry so much. And we've talked about this in other episodes. I worry so much about um, maternal mental health and 
information overload, the what ifs of being pregnant, there are a lot of those anyway. Um, And so I'm always talking about like, do we think that this is something that we want to add to our plate of what ifs? Yeah. In full disclosure, I did not do any of these um, screening tests or diagnostic tests in my pregnancies. I was also, I mean, not young, but not old either. Um, But I, the, the idea of creating worry on like potentials for false negatives or those sorts of things would have stressed me out. Um, And I didn't think I would do anything different with the information other than be stressed out. And so I didn't choose to do them. That doesn't mean that I have any um, thoughts or feelings strongly one way or the other about my patients that do choose to do them. I want them to choose what's right for them and help them make those decisions. But I agree with you. Well, and you know, I had IVF and I chose not to do embryonic testing because I thought, gosh, I've worked hard enough for these babies and these embryos. Like I'm not, you're not taking any of their cells. They need all those cells. <laughs> like, I mean, they were like, well, do you want to know what it is if it's a boy or a girl? And then I'm like, no, like I can wait for 20 weeks to find out if this is a boy yeah. or a girl. I mean, I, I absolutely hear you. Like I, again, um, the anxiety, I think of knowing that risks and benefits was just not worth it to me. Yeah. Agree. Agree. So, all right. So back to first trimester. So we talked a little bit about nuchal translucency and that first trimester, um, looking at those blood levels in first trimester, we can also do cell-free DNA in first trimester, but the difference with cell-free DNA is we can do it anytime during the pregnancy. Yeah. I, I mean, I do. I do want to mention it in first trimester because it can be done even earlier. So it can be done as early as nine, nine to 10 weeks, but you're right. Like it really can be done anytime. So we don't want to tie it just to the first trimester, but cell-free DNA, the technology that was not available when you and I were having babies has a really low false positive rate. So if you're going to pick a test that is going to have a low false positive rate, that's a good one to pick. It is. Very accurate. One of the risks of this type of testing is that you may not get a result at all, and that could be stressful to people. Um, So if they don't have enough of the cell-free fetal DNA, they may not be able to report a result to the patient. And that in and of itself is a bit of an abnormal result, if that makes sense. But um, if you do get a result reported out to you, it is the best lowest false positive rate. And it's quite accurate. The other thing about cell-free DNA is it will um, screen for the most number of chromosomal anomalies more than anything else. Um, And, you know, that's important to some people um, to sort of have the best screening picture that you can have. Yeah. Um, The thing about the cell-free DNA, there's multiple companies, there's multiple different ways that they do it. Um, And they all screen for different things. Some of their technology 
um, screens, you know, you have to understand, like, are you doing a maternity test or like what the company is that does the salty free DNA? Because that will tell you what things it also screens for. Yes. And in my area, I don't know how this is in your area of the country, but my area, most of the time patients that want this are getting referred to high risk OB because they deal the most with the billing and coding. They've got genetic counselors there. Um, so we're not doing them routinely in like, but I'm in a big metropolitan area where we have that readily available. I think probably if you're more rural or something, you probably are obtaining those um, samples yourself and sending them off and then using the company and their genetic counselors to counsel patients on results, depending on how they come back. That's exactly right. And Um, and our, um, OB coordinator, our nurse would actually have conversations like insurance doesn't pay for this. This is how much it is out of pocket. Um, and the people who wanted to have it done paid the out of pocket amount. Um, but we didn't have the luxury, I think of sending people away. So it was like, we had to figure out like how to do that. And interestingly enough, a lot of people just do it for gender. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess we should throw this mention in there. A couple of years ago when this was new technology, the companies marketed it as a gender test and it was relatively inexpensive. Part of the reason they did that was they needed to get a huge number of normal pregnancy samples because the studies to show how well it worked were on abnormal pregnancies. And so they needed a huge volume of normal pregnancies to build up their ability to really test normal pregnancies for abnormal, like normal risk pregnancies for abnormalities, if that makes sense. And so they did that genetic test, I think, was it $25 or something for gender for, for a couple of years in there. And so now people are so used to having that, that they, I agree with you. I think a lot of them, because you can find out the gender so early, the sex, I should say, you can find out the sex. Very good. Yes. Okay. So those are our options in the first trimester. And then I kind of mentioned with that first trimester that you can add on like an AFP test later to test for like the um, neural tube defect that kind of leads us into our second trimester test of a quad screen. Um, And the quad can be done anywhere between like 15 and 20 weeks. I think you can maybe kind of extend it up to 22, Um, but it tests for not only um, the HCG, AFP for the neural tube defects, estradiol, and then the inhibin. And so that's the quad, the four things that it's looking at those different markers and determining the pregnancy risk compared to others of the similar age for trisomy 21, trisomy 13, and open neural tube defects. Yes. And I think it's important for, um, for midwives to also understand the other things that go into the algorithm when we talk about a quad screening test. So not only are we drawing blood and looking at these four blood values, but we also have to report how many babies are in the belly. So number of fetuses, because that makes a difference when you calculate this, um, their EDC and the, that EDC is really important. I'm going to talk about that in a second, um, maternal age as well as weight, not pre-pregnancy weight, the weight they are the day of the test. Because what happens with these screening tests is it all goes into an algorithm that then takes the algorithm, puts in the blood test results and, and stratifies this risk ratio. So one of the things that's really important about EDC in this case is 
you really need to have an accurate EDC because if your EDC is off, it will affect this test and may cause a false positive. Yeah. So that's one of the first things that, that we look at when we get a test back that says it's a positive screen, meaning there is an increased risk is, is this patient on, is this due date? Right. So we go back and look like, how was this pregnancy dated? Was it dated by a first trimester ultrasound? Was it dated by a sure LMP or an IVF, right? A sure date of conception, et cetera. So um, I think it's really important to just understand the algorithm that goes into some of these screening tests. Yeah. And abnormal dating is probably the most common reason that someone has a false positive um, screening result, I would I would guess. And so sometimes, you know, you have an ultrasound around the same time and maybe you end up changing the date, you'll send it back for reanalysis because dating can make such an important, it's an important component of the analysis. Right. So do you want to talk a little bit about the integrated screen and, you know, sort of these, what I call mixed, I call them mixed method screening because we're doing different things, right? Yeah. So and, you know, I don't see them done as much. Um, the There was integrated screen, sequential screen. Basically, all of those different things were the combination of the first trimester screen with either nuchal translucency and then doing a quad screen later on or doing the nuchal translucency and blood test early on in the first trimester and then doing the AFP alone um, next. But the nice thing was, again, it was first trimester screening. You were getting the nuchal translucency and then adding to it some additional blood work at the time that you would normally do the quad screen, like that 15 to 22 weeks. And it gave a more complete picture than any one test alone. So that was the nice thing about it. I feel like I don't see these done anymore. Um, because it's probably been replaced by the cell-free fetal DNA done so early, or you're in a low resource setting, which is a lot of my patients, and we have a quad screen, and that's all we have available. But there are places that will still offer you either the integrated or the sequential, which is that combination of the first trimester and then some second trimester testing. And together, you really don't get a full, complete analysis of the risk until you have all of the pieces together. And then you can now um, really tell someone what the risk is once you have all of those components together. Exactly. You could even, I, we didn't mention it, but you can do nuchal translucency alone, although it's not as accurate either. So it's nice to have all the components or to pick a different test that has a higher detection rate, more accurate. Yeah. I want to touch on some ultrasound screening markers because we did talk about ultrasound being something that we use for screening, even those level two ultrasounds we use for screening. So I'm just going to like briefly for a second, talk about ultrasound screening, because then I think we should talk about the recommendations from ACOG. Agreed. Sounds good. So So were you going to start with like just general, everyone should have an ultrasound. Right. And then we'll talk about what some of the markers are that could be a little bit abnormal. Yes. So in first trimester, we, we would love for every patient to have a first trimester ultrasound, right? Because of dating that matters for dating. Um, because we're unreliable historians about menstrual periods sometimes. And, um, some people are on birth control when they get pregnant, or, I mean, there's a million reasons why your EDC could be wrong. 
It's also just really nice when you're making decisions about timing of induction of labor or when delivery. I mean, it's nice to have that first trimester ultrasound. Right. But also with first trimester, we definitely can look at this nuchal translucency, which is the primary marker used for risk assessment when it comes to chromosomal anomalies. Um, And so we're looking for that enlarged nuchal translucency. So it's greater than three millimeters or great above the 99th percentile for whatever the crown rump length is. Length is. So again, um, there have been a ton of studies that are done on this and, um, and it's, it's highly predictive of chromosomal anomaly. And so we have to be, you know, aware of that as patients are having first trimester ultrasounds. Sometimes people are having first trimester ultrasounds just because they're looking at viability. Um, is there a heartbeat? And, you know, we get excited about those kinds of things, but also nuchal translucency and first trimester can also give you some really good, um, indications about whether or not you should do further testing. Agreed. Also, everyone should have a second trimester ultrasound, right? Because that's going to look for structural abnormalities, things that we're never going to see on a first trimester ultrasound or on any of our other tests. So reasons, right? For second trimester ultrasound, you know, we want to make sure the babies have all of their fingers and toes, plus all of their organ systems and things are working like they're supposed to. But there are also some markers that come along with that second trimester ultrasound. So things like, again, thick and nuchal fold. So, and in a second trimester ultrasound, it's greater than six millimeters. Um, And that's sometime between 15 and 20 weeks for that greater than six millimeters, which is associated very strongly with trisomy 21. Um, Also looking at the nasal bone, um, when when we're looking at babies' faces on on second trimester ultrasound, because again, um, the nasal bone can be absent in up to 40% of babies who have trisomy 21. So another sort of what we call soft markers, right? Right. Um, because they are screenings and screenings are soft markers. Um, other second trimester things are things like pylectasis, echogenic bowel, um, and enlargement of the ventricles. So um, these things can also be soft markers for trisomy 21. So really what we're looking for, if you're thinking about chromosomal analysis, um, anomalies in second trimester, a lot of these soft markers are particular to trisomy 21. Yeah, agreed. So I think that in trisomy 13 and trisomy 18, oftentimes there's like pretty pronounced structural abnormalities that we could pick up on ultrasound and say, that is very clearly a structural problem. But all of these that you've mentioned feel like soft markers are more so for trisomy 21 that doesn't always have the same structural components to it. And I mean, I think you're going to tell me that if you have more than one of these present, then it increases the likelihood that we've got something going on. Yes. And also as we look at second trimester, trisomy 13 and 18 are incompatible with life. Now, do some trisomy 13 and 18 babies come out and live for some amount of time? Yes, but rarely. Um, And and oftentimes those women will go into preterm labor and deliver those babies because it's almost as if the body knows that there's something wrong and the body, you know, does what it does to, um, to terminate the pregnancy on its own. The other thing in, um, 
in that second trimester ultrasound that you, that's a big structural thing, um, is anencephaly. Right. So there are things that when we see them on ultrasound are diagnostic, right. That will be like, okay, we can't deny that there's irrefutable evidence on this ultrasound that X, Y, and Z are wrong. Right. But what I'm talking about more with the second trimester screen is the, those clinical soft markers for maybe there's something that we need to be looking at more carefully. Yeah. And when we notice those soft markers, then that's when it's really nice to have your genetic counselor, high risk OB that can do the more detailed counseling about what other options are available for testing, um, what the different options are for the pregnancy continuing, those sorts of things. And in those situations, it's nice to have a good referral center that you can utilize. Yeah, I agree. I think MFM is a gift. And if we, you know, sometimes we even just use them for reassurance, right? Right. Um, One of my babies had an echogenic focus that wouldn't go away. And echogenic focus is also a soft marker for trisomy 21. And so, you know, even just having a fetal echo and being able to go to an MFM that said, hey, everything is fine, um, felt like reassurance um, to me, you know, carrying a very precious IVF baby. So do you want to talk about this, the summary of the recommendations, like the A's and the B's? I would. Yes. Cause you know that we love our summaries and a recommendations and so forth. So the level a recommendations, there's quite a few, which is kind of surprising in an OB field where we don't always have level a recommendations, but prenatal genetic screening. So that means either serum screening with or without nuchal translucency or cell-free DNA, or even offering diagnostic tests like CVS and amniocentesis, that should be discussed and offered to all patients, regardless of risk, regardless of age. Level A recommendations, we should be able to have conversations with people and talk about what their different options are. After review and discussion, they have the right to either pursue testing or to decline it. Another recommendation that is level A is that if screening is accepted, patients should have one approach. We shouldn't do all of the different screenings. We should have one approach that we choose and go that path. Um, Now, cell-free DNA is the most sensitive and specific screening tests, um, but it does have occasionally a false negative or a false positive. Um, So we should make sure that people understand that cell-free DNA is very accurate, but it is not the same as a diagnostic test. So that's our other recommendation. All patients should be offered a second trimester ultrasound for structural defects. um, And that should be around 18 to 22 weeks of gestation. Patients that have a positive screening test result for fetal aneuploidy should undergo genetic counseling and have a comprehensive level two ultrasound evaluation with the opportunity for diagnostic testing to help confirm any findings. Um, With patients that have a negative screening test, we should make sure that they are aware that that pregnancy, their risk is substantially decreased um, for the targeted aneuploidy that the test was looking for but it doesn't mean that their fetus isn't affected. So again, understanding that screening is all about detecting risk and it is not diagnostic. Um, So if someone has a negative result, making sure they understand that. If patients have um, cell-free DNA screening test results that are not reported by the lab, 
um, or they're uninterpretable, um, then they should be informed that the test, they should be informed that the test failure is associated with an increased risk of aneuploidy. So in itself, not being able to get a result increases the risk of aneuploidy slightly. And so they need to understand that and then have genetic counseling and options of further testing. If an enlarged nuchal translucency or an anomaly is identified on ultrasound, then that patient should also be offered genetic counseling and diagnostic testing for genetic conditions um, and have that comprehensive ultrasound as well. So those are all of our level A recommendations related to screening for chromosomal anomalies. Now we then go on to the Bs. Do you want me to continue with those? Yeah, but I want to make a point really quick. Okay. There are a lot of ways to deal with positive screening tests and the right way is what's right for our patients. So I feel like when we were training, it was, you have a positive quad screen and you get an amnio. If that was your choice in terms of diagnostics. Now I feel like we have a cell-free DNA or we have a quad screen the next thing that we're likely going to do before we go all the way to something like an amnio or CVS is a level two ultrasound. Yeah. So I think we have a lot more, or should I say better options for going from a screening test straight to a diagnostic test in the prenatal period. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. So our first level B recommendation is actually something that I think is really helpful. So a level B is that the use of cell-free DNA screening as follow-up for patients with a screen positive on like a blood draw, a serum test or nuchal translucency is an option for patients that don't want to go on and have any other diagnostic test. So they don't want a CVS or they don't want an amniocentesis. They are suggesting that although it is another type of screening test, cell-free fetal DNA can be an option because it is more accurate. It is more reliable, sensitive and specific, so forth, so that it could be an option, even though it's not a diagnostic test. So that's a level B recommendation. Then we go on to the, if there are clinical situations of ultrasound, soft ultrasound findings, um, where an aneuploidy screening has not been performed, then the patient should be counseled um, and offer different testing, including the cell-free DNA, quad screening, or so forth, as well as um, genetic counseling and so forth. There is no method of aneuploidy screening that includes a serum sample that is accurate in twin gestations. So, you know, Missy talked to us earlier about the whole thing that goes into the algorithm related to weight and gestational age and so forth. But a singleton pregnancy is something that we can interpret. But once we have a twin gestation, it makes interpretation of the results nearly impossible with a serum draw. And so, um, that's just something to keep in mind if, and, and not many midwives are caring for twin gestations, but if you are, then you would want to understand that it's very difficult to interpret those results. Cell-free DNA screening can be performed though in twin pregnancies. Um, but if one of the fetuses is affected, it makes interpretation of the other fetus much more difficult. And so, um, there's also not a lot of, um, affected cases. And so it makes interpretation more difficult as well. 
And then Missy also mentioned the pre-implantation genetic testing um, that can be done. And it's not necessarily uniformly accurate across all settings or all providers that do the pre-implantation genetic testing. So we want to make sure that prenatal screening and prenatal diagnosis is offered to all patients, even if they've been had that pre-implantation testing done as well. So those are all of our level B recommendations. There's some that are just recommendations based on consensus or kind of like lots of years of this is what we know best, but we don't have good um, studies to support it. And that has to do with um, using multiple screening, um, like using more than one method and hoping that it makes our our results more accurate. We just don't know that that's true. Um, If there's a multi-fetal gestation and there's like a fetal demise or a vanishing twin or some other anomaly, it makes interpretation again, very difficult for the twin pregnancy. And then the, the last one would be that patients that have unusual or multiple aneuploidies um, detected by cell-free DNA Um, that they should also be obviously referred for genetic counseling and maternal fetal medicine consultation. We just don't see that very often. And you would not want to be the only one counseling the patient about that because it's so rare. So that goes through all of our A, B, and then C recommendations related to aneuploidy screening and chromosomal abnormalities. The takeaway message, I think, when we talk about even preconception or um, prenatal genetic testing is as the midwife, you need to have a clear idea of what your script sort of looks like when you talk to patients about this. It's just like anything else, right? We have a script in our head of the things that we say all the time, and this is not any different than that, but you do have to have some baseline knowledge about the different tests. You will have patients that come in and know more than you do. Because they have done a lot of research about that. And I I always say to them, like, I don't know about that particular test. Let me, you know, do some research myself. Like they've come with, you know, some new kind of self-free DNA and, you know, they want to know your opinion. So this is a thing that's going to continue to change. It's going to continue to evolve as the technology gets better. Um, You know, the more we have advances in STEM, the more you're going to see, you know, this technology get better and better. And so we, it's, it's definitely a topic that I think we could touch on every two years because it's going to be different in two years from now. Well, actually I got to thinking this, um, this recommendation came out in 2020. It's probably time for another one because the one before that was done and reaffirmed in 2018. So about every two years or so, doesn't it feel like things change and there's something new available? So I agree with you. Well, it's one of the things I think there are a lot of things in obstetrics that have not changed in a very long time. Right. I mean, it took us forever to dump the Friedman curve and to start using Zhang and, you know, to stop, stop talking about three being active labor. And now we talk about six. I mean, that was something that took forever to change. But when we think about the technologies and, you know, that's like my sweet spot of the things that I love to talk about, when we talk about the technologies that are linked in terms of how good we can do or how well we can predict or how well we can screen and diagnose, those things are changing so rapidly. I said, you can't even write a textbook about these things because as soon as it's printed, it's obsolete. So, you know, if you're picking and choosing topics that you really need to do continuing education on, on the regular, like this is one of those things. 
Agreed. Agreed. And I think you've hit on the highlights of make sure you understand the difference between screening and diagnosis. Um, I would have a good resource like this um, uh, resource from ACOG or something else similar that helps you be able to talk about what all the different options are, talk about detection rates, false positive rates, those sorts of things with patients, and then just do continuing education and stay up to date because it's going to be really important because this is something that will definitely change during your practice career. I have absolutely no doubt that there will be new options available um, and it feels like it's constantly changing. And for our students who are listening, I think that the the baseline knowledge of screening versus diagnosis is so important in so many of the things that we do and how we counsel patients. And in this particular topic, understanding the things that go into the test, right? what the factors are that help make that risk ratio are really important to understand as well. Well, this was a really fun conversation. I love a good update. It always makes my brain function at a higher level when I'm like, oh yeah, now I I know a little more than I knew before. Agreed. Agreed. I think this was a great topic. I've loved chatting about it with you and I'm sure we'll have some update for this in the coming year or so. So I appreciate you, Missy. Thanks for talking with me about this tonight. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. All right. Take care.